So, Paulette, have you heard of the concept called defense mechanisms before? I have. You have? Yes. What do you think that they are, given that you're the American layperson? Like a lightsaber shield. You're defending yourself. It's a mechanism for... Hissing. (laughs) Well, they are and have been the cornerstone of psychoanalysis since Freud first introduced the concept. When do you think Freud first introduced the concept? What year-ish? Uh, right after his first cocaine binge <laughs> in 1884. Ooh, my gosh. Close. 1894. Oh, my God. I can't even believe I got the right century, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been paying attention to the podcast. Well, today, I want to explain what defense mechanisms are. I'm also going to define and give examples of each defense. And Paulette, you're going, we're, we're going to see if you use any of these defenses in your own life. What do you say? Okay, sounds great. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed therapist. I'm writer and American layperson, Paulette Perhatch, your co-host. Famous for the fuck-off fund. <laughs> we should just say that every time. I'm fuck-off fund Until author. you're famous for the next article. I'm that chick who wrote fuck-off fund. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that'll be on your, on your gravestone. <laughs> this episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com to become a patron of the podcast. Please do that now to get access to this episode. Welcome to the Patron Zone, everyone. So Freud noticed in the beginning, in the 1890s, that people used mental tricks. In the beginning. In the beginning. <laughs> in the beginning, Freud noticed. Well, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a way, it was the beginning because he was inventing talk therapy and a certain brand of psychology. But anyway, Freud noticed in the beginning that people would use mental tricks to, de- to diminish mental suffering. So he noticed that when people were suffering mentally, they tended to use these mental tricks to to reduce the mental suffering. He also noticed that these mental tricks were largely outside of people's awareness, so they were unconscious. They were they were operating on an unconscious level. They weren't operating purposefully or intentionally by the people. Later, his daughter Anna Freud, also a psychoanalyst, uh, would elaborate on the concept of defenses. She's the one who really made defense mechanisms famous. In fact, she coined the term defense mechanism. Freud referred to, to defenses. Uh, he Freud wrote a lot, but and defenses were a small part of it. Anna Freud made it a central uh, foundation of her uh, overall theory and approach to psychoanalysis, and she coined the term defense mechanisms. Later, many others would contribute to the concept, including people like William Wilhelm Reich and Melanie Klein in the 1940s. Today, psychodynamic therapists are interested in assessing and addressing particular constellations of defense mechanisms that characterize each client. So psycho, contemporary psychodynamic therapists like myself pay attention to, to, to defense mechanisms and address them with their clients. Within traditional psychoanalytic models, defense mechanisms were viewed as preventing awareness of unconscious sexual and aggressive drives. So you you know Freud is associated with a lot of sexual drive kind of stuff. Well, that that that's classical psychoanalysis. You know that he, for instance, Freud believed that we all have a lot of sexual energy that is being suppressed because society during that that time particularly during Elizabethan, oh God! I'm sure, Jesus. Elizabethan 1800s Britain. Yeah. Oh Europe, God! Oh no, that wasn't repressed at all. And Europe, yeah, <laughs> and and so he believed that we employed defense mechanisms to push back our sexuality because we believed that they weren't acceptable, and it was fairly. Uh, he focused on that a lot. He focused on a lot of things, but he focused on that one a lot. However, in contemporary psychodynamic thinking. A defense mechanism is employed to, pre- to preserve a sense of self-esteem in the face of shame and to ensure a sense of safety when one feels abandoned or threatened. And I'll go more into that later. It's, it's, it doesn't have to do necessarily with sex. In fact, it often doesn't have anything to do with sex in terms of defense mechanisms in contemporary theory. 
So to define a defense mechanism, this is my own uh, definition of it uh, compiled from, because it's been written about by thousands of people over the years, so uh, this is my definition. A defense mechanism is any mental activity that is used to avoid conscious awareness of a disturbing unconscious theme or of some powerful threatening feeling such as anxiety or grief. And again, I'll go more into that later. Let's see. Okay, so there are different levels of defense mechanisms, and there are different writers will identify different levels. But I'm 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 using a model that identifies I think two or three three different levels. And the first level is the most pathological level, and we call that level one pathological or primary or primitive defenses. What do you mean by most pathological? So level one is the most troublesome, the most bothersome, the most entrenched. What the, is like, define like pathological. I've heard pathological liar, but I don't really have a definition for that word. Oh, pathological meaning the most dysfunctional, Ooh. the most problematic, the most uh, likely to cause the most problems in your life. Oh. Yeah. So level one is primary defenses, primitive or pathological defenses, and they're always the most severe and they frequently appear irrational or insane to other people. So if you were to observe a, a, a level one defense mechanism in another person, you would really notice it, and it would seem crazy or very irrational for them. And it's even common in psychosis, so when people are delusional, that sort of thing. So the first one that I will talk about, so it's not likely that you've ever employed any of these in full effect, Paulette. So... Uh, feel free to say that these first number you've never actually done yourself, but you, you might want to think that, but you might've had, <laughs> you might've had hints of these. Um, so the first one that I want to talk about is called primitive withdrawal. This is a defense mechanism that again is one of the more pathological ones. Primitive withdrawal. It's uh, for example, it's when people fall asleep to escape a difficult emotional experience. So if you're, totally trapped by a, by a conflict or by an emotional situation, your body will actually fall asleep or, or completely withdraw from people completely or maybe even go into severe chronic substance abuse in order to withdraw mm. from the pain. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've seen that, you know, like when someone's going through a really hard time and they just sleep all the time. Right. So you could consider that a primitive withdrawal. And it's not as if the person is a bad person because they're resorting to this. Mm. It's evidence that their suffering is so severe and that their childhood experiences were perhaps not sufficient enough for them to develop more mature defenses. It's, it's evidence of those things. Does that make sense? Yeah. When, when we see people using these more primitive defense mechanisms it's evidence of ongoing suffering from particularly when they were a child. Okay, so number two, we've all heard of this one, denial. To some extent, I like to think of denial as a defense that is at least a part of all the defenses to some extent. In order to defend against difficult and painful feelings and, and, and shame, a certain amount of denial has to be employed to protect yourself from what you believe to be reality. So, for instance, an example of this is initial denial of a loss. So your mother dies, and there are varying degrees of denial. A very pathological level of denial is to actually believe that your mother has not died, is to say, no, she's alive and well. She just went to Mexico. Like, people Does will... that happen? That happens, yeah. In severe cases when the pain is severe enough, people will actually go into, to some extent, delusional denial wow. about things. But there's a spectrum there. So uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you might find yourself daydreaming about the person not being uh, gone or trying to forget, purposely forget that the person has passed away, that sort of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, this is all just like, I'm just scanning for the time after my dad was killed in an accident where I'm like, if there was any, ever a time when I had my most severe behavior, right. 
you know, and you just always want to think that person, you could totally get trapped in like, maybe it's just not real in some way. I mean, your brain is just like panicking and searching for any reason. And I had this really terrible encounter. My mom and I went to a psychic as like a joke Uh and she started to like really dramatically channel my dead father. Uh And I was just like, (gasps) like part of me knew I'm in a room with a person so terrible. They would pretend to channel my dead father. But part of me wanted to believe that it was true, that I could talk to my dad one more time in some way. And then it was this really emotional, terrible thing. So that denial is just so tempting because it's just so hard to face some things. Right. Our brain, as you put it, basically, when it's under such severe pain, will find a way to soothe itself. And that's the idea. It's not conscious. That's the idea of defense mechanisms. We don't. Some of them can be conscious, but the vast majority of them are not. In that, when we're suffering from pain, the ego will figure out a way to soothe ourselves, and denial is a wonderful way to do that under severe stress. Mm-hmm. Another example is denial of a bad relationship. This is not as severe as being delusional about you know something in reality, but you can imagine being in a in an abusive or not so great relationship and just being in denial of it, just saying, no, this is good. Everything's fine. And your brain is just trying to convince yourself that everything is okay because the pain involved in leaving that person or the pain involved in thinking about being alone or the pain involved in thinking about dating again or whatever it is about the, or the pain involved in wondering, will anyone ever love me the way this person does? To protect ourselves from that pain, we will go into denial of the problems in a relationship. Can you relate to that at all? Um, yeah. <laughs> Who hasn't been in denial about a relationship? Um, I think I was always scared that if I was single, I was going to be the single forever person. You know, like, it's like this mark of acceptability, of social acceptability that I clung to, especially as a younger woman and I don't think that I'm really that way anymore, which is nice. I feel comfortable with myself. Um, but definitely during college, there was, um, there was someone that I stayed with too long that I was like, Oh, it's fine. And then my best friend was just like, um, slap across the face, bucket of cold water, you know, hello. And I think that is part of the denial thing, the people around you, or I guess it's more of a question. What is the responsibility of the people around you? If you see a friend that's totally in denial, is it your responsibility to be like, hello? Yeah. Well, it's a t- difficult question and a nuanced one. And in general, you just have to be a good friend and not alienate them, of course, by telling them that they're completely stupid and in denial. But but friends can be, uh, and or other people, including therapists, can be a wonderful way of us helping us to not be in denial. Mm-hmm. And it's not just that, hello, you're stupid, you're in a terrible relationship and you're in denial. But it's also things like you're, you're good enough to uh, f- attract someone else. Mm-hmm. You don't need this person. There are other fish in the sea that will love you in the way that you want to be loved. So there's a lot of different messages that you can tell someone in those kinds of situations, yeah. Okay, so other primitive level one defenses that I won't go into in detail, but I'll just mention um, omnipotent control, idealization, dissociation, and splitting. But for the sake of time, I won't go into them. But the last primitive defense I want to go into is called conversion. This used to be called hysteria. You've heard of hysteria before. Oh, women's hysteria. <laughs> right, which has to do with your, your uterus traveling around in your body. Have you ever heard this what? before? No. Um, I'm only about 75% sure that this is correct and I don't want to look it up right now, but hysteria, you know, hysterectomy has involved to do, you know, Uh so hist is the uterus. Oh, I didn't know that. And so when women were acting crazy, they thought it was because their uterus was causing problems for the woman because they're like, all the doctors are men, and so they don't yeah. understand women. And since women are being oppressed and marginalized, sometimes they would be upset about that. <laughs> and so when the men would look at the women, they would say, 
oh, something must be crazy with that one because she's talking back. It must be – what's different about women? Well, they have, they have these uteruses or uteri, as I like to call them, <laughs> and it must be a problem with the uterus. So let's get rid of the uterus. And so they would call it hysteria. They're, they're of the uterus, you know. And uh, <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> then it evolved into uh, basically the conversion, which is when – you have a physical symptom manifest, manifesting from a psychological problem. Mm. So it's converting an inner conflict into a f- somatic or physical reality, like, like your father dies and you're so upset about it and you don't know, and you're, you don't know how to mourn him, for instance, and instead your arm goes numb huh. or you go blind or you go deaf or you have a lot of stomach problems or... Uh, you can't walk. There in the past, conversion was more prevalent. It's not so prevalent anymore. You don't hear about people going blind from a psychological problem today. Okay, can I ask you a question? Sure. I have a friend who gets the shakes since she was in her early twenties. Okay. And she keeps trying to figure it out and go to the doctor, and people keep telling her that it's psychosomatic. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? They wouldn't say psychosomatic because that term is kind of a layperson term. They, okay. might have, they might have said psychogenic, okay. meaning that it is generated They from keep saying psychology. it's because of her past, right. of her life, like her life situation. Well, I can tell you that a, re- a responsible clinician would say, there's n- we c- if they can't find a reason, for instance, they would say, I'm sorry, but we can't find a reason for the shaking. It's possible it's psychogenic, yeah. but there's no way for us to know either way. You could actually have a physical condition that's causing this, but we don't exactly know the answer to that. Okay. I'm sad that psychosomatic isn't a word. It's so fun to say. It is a word, but it's uh, what people often mean when they say psychosomatic, they mean psychogenic. Anyway, um, well, what kind of shaking and like what precedes the shaking? Just She'll just go through phases where she just shakes like her whole body and her legs when she walks will just shake and her voice sometimes gets shaky. Interesting. Yeah. Her whole body. And does anything precede it like stress or anything? No, I don't think so. That's interesting. Yeah. And does anything like that run in her family? Mm -mm. Is she an anxious person? No. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's a bit of a mystery. It doesn't ring any bells of, a common psychogenic issue to me, it sounds more like something is going wrong with her nervous system. Yeah. She thinks it's MS. It could be MS. Yeah. Right. Uh, so yeah, she should probably seek a, a second opinion on that one. Yeah. She's had about 30 opinions on it. And, and people are telling her that it, they can't find a physical. Yeah. Huh. But I'm just wondering. That, that must be in, scary. Yeah. So Freud might have seen this as a conversion in that something out of her awareness in her unconscious is causing her psychic pain and it's converting into this shaking. And the fact that she's not aware of her stress to Freud might have been even more evidence that it was stress because the more it's pushed into the unconscious, the more we're unaware of it, the more it starts to create uh, these primitive defenses. Okay, so level two. These are what we call immature defenses or neurotic defenses. Oh, I bet I have a lot of these. <laughs> <laughs> so these are less pathological than the level one. They're often present in adults. As with all defenses, these mechanisms lessen distress, lessen psychological distress, but they often cause problems in our relationships. Because when people interact with us while we're engaged in a, in a defense mechanism, it often doesn't go well for the other person. They're not very, dis, they're not very functional dis, defenses. The level three, which is the next level we'll talk about, often involve functional defenses, which we'll get into. So these are dysfunctional. And they often are seen in major depression and personality disorders. Anyway. So there's repression, which I won't go into, but there's also regression, which I do want to go into because I find this to be a a common defense that people use. We often regress to an earlier phase of our personality when we're stressed. So if we're under psychological stress, we'll regress to a, a previous stage of our development. For instance, 
I'm 45, and if I'm under stress, I might regress back to a 13-year-old or even a five-year-old. If I'm and, and we're all prone to this. If you're really, really hurt and you're really, really stressed and you don't know what to do, you might curl up in a fetal position and cry, or you might uh, want to talk to your parents, or you might treat your partner like they are your parent and you need to be held and and so there's there's some functionality and normalcy to this but there's also some dysfunction to it is if you're interacting with your partner and when they're stressed out at work they come home and they act like a defiant adolescent every other day and treat you like a parent that could be dysfunctional in our relationship you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. does this ring a bell at all not really i mean i don't know i think in general i act immature <laughs> <laughs> well there's acting immature and then there's like rigidly immature, like yeah. actually immature. Because there's us acting silly, which is associated with youth. But immaturity are things like, I'm not responsible for anything. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to give you anything. I'm going to take everything. You know, because children mm, yeah. developmentally deserve to be, receive and they don't need to give back. You know? I mean, there's been some suggestion that like because... You know, my dad died two months before I graduated high school. And then I went to what was at one point, like one of the number one party schools in the nation. So like, I really didn't get that, like those, those college years, you know, and like mentally and emotionally. So I'm like, I'm 33 and I still act like I'm, you know, 21, but not in every way. I think I'm getting over it now that I am more aware of it. Well, I kind of feel like the 33 is the new 21. That is true. <laughs> so ex- examples like this are whining, if you have an adult oh, yeah, I whine all the time. That, that whines or acts like a child, uh-huh. or a child that acts like a younger child. And if you, have you, I don't know if you are around children very much, but um, you'll see like a five-year-old when he or she gets upset often they will regress to, and you'll actually hear their voice change. Mm-hmm. They'll sound like a three-year-old. Oh, wow. They'll, they'll start using vocabulary like a three-year-old because it's much more comforting to go back to an earlier time when you felt more secure and you felt like people were taking care of you more. That's the idea. Um, someone might find that they can no longer speak intelligently or do something. Like, have you ever had this experience where you're around someone that's maybe intimidating or stressing you out or or you've had a stressful day and you are a klutz or you can't seem to do anything right. Does that mm. ever happen to you? Oh, uh, yeah. So that could be considered a regression mm. in that you're stressed out, you're reverting to an earlier phase of your personality when you didn't have those skills. Mm. So that that's something that happens to people. All right. So there's also isolation, which I won't go into. That's a defense mechanism. Intellectualization. This is a common one I want to I want to talk about. It's mm-hmm. it's one of those mid level defenses that adults tend to use, and it's not terribly dysfunctional, but it can be a problem. It is when we talk about something in a very intellectual way because we want to avoid the difficult feelings associated with it. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, that's really interesting because there's a lot of talk about that in the writing community. Actually, there's a very interesting George Saunders essay where he quotes this report and it sounds very official. And it turns out that it's from, um, the Nazis in the Holocaust. And he's like, what this report actually says is if we use this kind of gas, we'll kill more Jewish people. Exactly. It's an excellent example. The individual was likely a normal human being with normal, normal feelings and having to do horrible, horrible things to people. And a way to defend against that is to intellectualize it, is to make it very uh, intellectual and, and without any emotion involved. Yeah. I see that at, in businesses too, when people want to disassociate themselves from their actions. Right. And like, in you know, if things went wrong or mistakes were made, you know. Right, exactly. We, we killed thousands of people from our, from our bad medication. Mistakes were made. Yeah. Um, but in, in individuals, we will see people talking about something horrible that happened to them in a very intellectual way. They might even say, this was very horrible for me. But, <laughs> but when you talk to them, you don't get a sense that they're really embodying the feeling in that uh-huh. moment. That's intellectualization. Mm. And it's very common for, 
for us Americans who descend from Northern European nations to do that. It's a very Northern European and, and, and also a Japanese thing. So I have it from both directions because <laughs> I'm both Swedish, English, and Japanese. And intellectualization is a very common thing to us. It's a, it's, it's, it's a value of being stoic. It's a value of, of not depending on other people. It's a value of being strong, so to speak. And intellectualization is used by a lot of people. And my clients will, it's very so common that I would say almost every client I talk to uses this to some extent. And the idea in therapy is not to beat someone over the head and say, hey, you need to feel your feelings. It's to recognize that their suffering is to such a degree that they're resorting to intellectualization to cope with it. And that with better support and more corrective experiences, they can learn to feel their emotions in a more flexible way and not have to use intellectualization to, to cope. So other examples are a loved one dies from cancer, so the person reads all about cancer but doesn't feel the pain of the loss yet. Mm. So that's an intellectualization. You're learning about cancer because you aren't ready to feel the feelings yet. Yeah. Another example, someone gets dumped by their partner so they start thinking about the nature of romance a lot instead of feeling the hurt and rejection. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. So that is intellectualization. Also, another defense, rationalization. This is one I want to talk about because this is common too. It's otherwise known as making excuses for ourselves or someone else. In, if you're very intelligent or at least somewhat intelligent, intellectualization and rationalization are very easy for us. If you can figure out ways to to rationalize something, then it makes it easier to cope with. For instance, I drink because my job is stressful. So yeah. because you're drinking every day and you're looking at that and that's causing you shame and self-esteem problems, you want to protect yourself from that shame. And so you'll rationalize it by saying, oh, it's only because my job is stressful. Does that make sense? Totally. Do you ever yeah. do that? I know other people who do it. Okay. Well, you can talk about that too. <laughs> um, no, I never do that. Uh, what do I do that with? Are you in denial of your rationalization? I'm in denial. I'm, I'm intellectualizing my rationalization. I don't know. It's so hard to know how to live. Yeah. You know, like uh, my friend and I talk about often, like how hard should we be working? Because if you ask someone in Japan versus someone in, you know, South America and Paraguay, two different things. Should you relax? You've you've been to Paraguay, so you know. I've lived in Paraguay, yeah. And I fully enjoyed how much they were like super chill and just like chill out, slow your roll, you know? I feel like warmer climates, it's like that. That is true because there's no, it's been found, I read, that um, cultures that evolved with extreme climate change, like you got to get all your stuff harvested before winter or you're not going to eat. Right. So like you better be on time. Right. Whereas in Paraguay, it's like the seasons are like not severe. Right. So it's been found that closer to the equator, people are more chill. Huh. I never thought about that. Makes total sense. Yeah. They were two hours late for everything. I am really punctual. And so I would make myself be half an hour late and then I would still wait like an hour and a half. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) I was exactly a half an hour late too. It was the nerdiest thing ever. Um, So back to rationalizing, whenever I think about, like, am I writing enough? Am I reading enough? Am I exercising enough? You know, I can rationalize, okay, let's go with exercise or eating. I have a really hard time keeping a healthy body. I'm a lazy ass bitch, acronym LAB. (laughs) And and I eat a ton. I love food. It's great. It's so good. Have you had it? Yes. It's yummy. Yeah. Have you had it in Seattle? Because I found that it's extra delicious in Seattle. <laughs> Is it? Um, like a hundred yards from my house, this guy who won the Bakery World Cup. Oh, like my Every God. day he has croissants filled with chocolate. Oh. Just right there. Which which place is that? Uh, Bakery Nouveau. Oh, my God. That's my favorite place of all time. Yeah. Like I brought like, my friend. Particularly in West Seattle. I They have the best pizza oh, and yeah. the best sandwiches and the best croissants and the best cookies. They have the best food of all time. Yeah. You live near there, huh? Well, no. I live in Capitol Hill, but they have a second location. Yeah, there. I know. You live yeah. near the other one. Yeah. So. By Group Health. I could probably, I probably rationalize around my health where I'm just like, oh, I'm working so hard. I'm a writer. You know when you like, you think your life's going great and then you realize you've forgotten about a complete like aspect of being alive. You're just like, hey, I think I'm doing pretty good oh flossing oh how many years has it been i completely forgot or like 
lately I've been like, I'm doing pretty good. And I was like, I haven't exercised in like two months. Um, so I think probably health stuff is my number one thing. Yeah. That's a tough one because it's hard to say, Oh, you're rationalizing by letting yourself have a chocolate croissant because we want, we need calories and <laughs> that's what I say when I go by. <laughs> well, I need calories. Yeah. To live. Yeah. But l- <laughs> let me let me ask you about some other possible because I don't want to get into like fat shaming kind of issues. No. Yeah. It's and I'm like I think I'm allowed to say it because it's myself. But right. everyone else should be completely fine with yourselves. Right. So that's what I don't want to get into. Is you're fine saying it, but but I don't want to make other people feel like they have to frame it that way. Yeah. But, but, no. Fair enough. But other things like. I like I've heard a lot of men say I don't need a girlfriend I'm fine on my own. Not that every man should be with a woman, but that it's when we're hurt, when we're rejected and 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 we have the urge or the drive to couple with someone else and have a companion, we instantly think about, oh crap, well that means I might get rejected again. Mm-hmm. Or, or I might have to process my feelings for my previous relationship. So I'll defend against that by rationalizing and saying, I'm fine on my own. I'm okay. It's an explanation that protects you from, from something. Or another one is, sure, I yelled at him, but that's only because he's a jerk. Mm. So this one has to do with the idea that you're looking back and you're going, oh, I yelled at that person. I'm, I don't want to see myself as a hostile, mean person. I don't, that's a, I'd be ashamed to see myself as having made a mistake there. So how can I rationalize this? Well, it's because he's a jerk. Yeah. People do this all the time. Yeah. All the time. When they are mean to someone, most people will rationalize it as the other person deserved it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, that's what's so amazing to me about life is that you can just frame it in so many different ways. And there is no universal truth. There's only your side and the other person's side. That is maddening to me. Right. That's a classic, your side, my side. Mm -hmm. As a marital therapist, as a couple therapist, I, that's my bread and butter (laughs) is hearing both sides and hearing completely different stories to the same conflict. And that's a rationalization because we want to see ourselves as the right person because to admit that we're wrong means that we made a mistake, which we feel tremendous shame about typically, and we want to protect ourselves from, from that. So we'll use some defense like denial or rationalization. All right. Another uh, defense mechanism is moralization, which I won't go into. But another one is compartmentalization. You might have actually heard this before. I've heard of that, yeah. yeah. It's like dissociation or isolation, and it's basically a rift between different ideas. So when we are trying to hold on to conflictual ideas, we become in denial that they are incompatible. For instance, Democrats will say that Republicans compartmentalize when they support gun rights and war while they denounce abortion. Does that make sense? Yes. You know, it's like the big, I'm not saying this, but you see this in the media. It's like, how can you as a Republican be pro-guns and pro-war, meaning that you don't mind killing people, you, 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 you're fine with people dying, but at the same time, you hate abortion and you want to save those people. Like if you put, so what Democrats would say about Republicans, which I'm not saying, is that they're compartmentalizing because they have a, a, an ideology that they're trying to follow and they have these two conflictual ideas and they will, they will section them off in their brain mm-hmm. and keep them separate so that they don't have to face the fact that they're being inconsistent in their mind. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Another one is, for me, is I recycle, right? I recycle, but I also drive a car, which is terrible for the environment. So I compartmentalize that in my brain and say, well, well, you know, it's fine. Or those are different (sighs) things. I need to get around. It's it's also rationalization. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, I need to drive a car because I need to get around. I recycle. So it's like this separation of, of two things. Uh, another one, a common one in the in the media is uh, a minister, a religious person, will rail against gay people while he is later found to be gay. So you're compartmentalized. He wants to be religious and follow his religion, but there's another part of him that is gay, and <laughs> or another part of him that recognizes he's gay. I guess I should say, and he compartmentalizes these two things. You know, during the day, he's 
he's railing against against gay people, and then at night he's meeting up with people in bathrooms to uh, at least get some of his identity out. Does that make sense? <laughs> I have no comment. <laughs> and then they get caught and then they get ridiculed and hopefully they can both be religious and gay because there are plenty of religious gay people and they can uh, li- live the life that they want to live and be the person they want to be in a way that is, you know, conducive to themselves. Anyway, so another uh, defense mechanism is undoing. I like this one. It's a magical fantasy. Mm-hmm. It's an unconscious effort to counterbalance something. For instance, to atone for one's sins. Ooh. This is an undoing. Cause, so you, may, you committed a sin, you committed a wrong, mm-hmm. and so you undo it by f- flogging yourself or by doing Hail Marys or by giving money to charity or something. Mm-hmm. Or punishing yourself for something that you're ashamed it's of. It's like when I eat Chick-fil-A and donate money to a pro-gay organization. Right, exactly. Did, do you do that? I don't really eat Chick-fil-A anymore because there's none in Seattle, but I did go to one in Tacoma and then say I was going to donate money and then I never did. Right. So you're planning on undoing. I was planning on undoing, but apparently the guy who hates gay people is no longer with us. Oh, really? Yeah. But still, but it's so good. It's a symbol. I haven't. It's so good. I was just talking about it with someone else today. It's in Tacoma now. Okay. Yeah, I should try. What? I don't understand how it can... In my mind, I'm like... It can't be that good because it's basically the McDonald's of chicken. Oh right? no, it's way the quality's way better. Oh really? Um, oh god, this comedian I was watching was like, I never thought I would do anything against gay people. I really, you know, support gay rights and everything. But then he's like, then I went to this thing and it was catered by Chick Fil A, and he's like, sorry, that shit's too good. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> sorry, gay people. Sorry, it's too delicious. Um, it's very delicious. But then it's like. Isn't it just like a chicken, like a like a fried or a yeah, like fried chicken in a sandwich? You ha- you can't be part of this conversation until you eat it. Okay, you have to go to Tacoma and have some, or a Bellevue now. Yeah, aren't they around here? Another example of undoing is if you got in a fight and you called your spouse a bad name, you go and buy a card or flowers or you take him out to dinner. This is undoing instead of apologizing. Yeah, essentially. Okay. Right. It's a your brain is trying to balance it out cuz you're you're so ashamed of what happened that instead of actually just addressing it head on, you come up with a defense like, "Well, I'll buy her flowers and that'll fix it." You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's it's not functional. More functional is to go to the person and say, "I'm sorry." But a defense mechanism that that is unconscious is to just undo it in your mind. You know, a classic is, a, again, atoning for your sins. You kill someone, and then you say, well, I'll go to church for, for a year, or I'll give money to the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and that, that will solve it. It's like, that doesn't solve it, really, right? Okay. Another one that is very common is displacement. A lot of people mistake this for projection. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's distinct from projection, but it's displacement. It's, when we, it's one of the main defenses that we use. When we have an impulse to do something to someone that we feel like we can't, then we will displace that energy to someone else. So if we're angry at our boss because oh, our, yeah. our boss like ridiculed us or hurt our feelings, we feel like we can't direct the hostility back at them because we're worried we're going to get fired or something. So we'll go home and we'll yell at our partner yeah, or we'll yell at someone online. Or a classic one, in my opinion, is we will yell at a politician for instance, right now, Donald Trump is the object of a lot of displacement by Americans. There's a lot of people who have issues in their life that are unresolved, and as a way of resolving them in a fake way, they direct their hostility towards Donald Trump. Not to say that Donald Trump doesn't deserve some things, but really all politicians get, get displaced. For instance, if you're, a, if you're a liberal, you notice that there's a lot of people that hate Obama, right? They'll say, thanks, Obama. Like that, that whole thing, when it was sincere, was a displacement. You know, people were upset about their lives. They were upset about their jobs. And they would blame Obama for their problems when Obama may or may not have had anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. That's a displacement. Yeah. Make sense? Do you ever mm-hmm. do that? Um, yeah. Oh, God. I'm trying to think. Yeah. I mean, if I am like mad at, uh, you know, some member of my family, then I can definitely like be short with my boyfriend, you know? Right. 
Meg, that's a classic example. Other ones is a marriage is in conflict, and instead of working it out in the marriage, they yell at their child instead. So that's another displacement. A, a really common one in my world is people will displace their issues from their parents or people in their lives onto their therapists like me. So as the relationship deepens, they will displace or transfer their issues that they had previous to me onto me and start to uh, feel hurt by me or distrust me for reasons that are related to their past or their outside of the therapy office life. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. There are other defense mechanisms, turning against the self, reaction formation, reversal, passive aggression, Acting out is something I want to just briefly go into. Acting out is a misunderstood term. It's, it's typically used in, in different ways. It, it often means like delinquency, you know, like, oh, that kid's acting out. But actually what it, it, it was the original definition in psychoanalysis was it's a direct expression of an unconscious wish or impulse without conscious awareness of the emotion that drives the expressive behavior. For instance... If someone is sexually abused, they might act out sexually to cope with the difficult feelings. Or if someone has been physically abused, they might act out violently. So they're, they're acting out the difficulty that is happening on the inside. It's not acting out like, oh, you're being annoying to me. <laughs> it's you have a conflict on the, on the inside. You don't know what to do with it, and so you act it out. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, one, one I've talked about often is projective identification. I'll just briefly talk about that. We basically internalize our early experiences and then we recreate them and we project our, our own difficult aspects of ourselves on other people and we socialize them to agree with it. So it's, this is pretty complicated and I've talked about it before. But as an example, you could have someone who experienced a critical mother and they have internalized that. And there's this inner conflict inside of them between being criticized and being critical. And they might find someone like their partner and then cause that person to criticize them and then they will fight against it. Does this make sense to you at all? So, okay. Like kind of drawing someone out? Yeah, you're, you're, you're manipulating them to agree with something you've internalized from a previous relationship so mm-hmm. you can fight against it. Interesting. Yeah. Seems weird. It is weird, but it's very <gasps> common. And we all do it <laughs> because we all have issues from our childhood that we recreate. Do you have anything like this in your life? Um I think like money issues keep coming up, you know, and like I've heard that you kind of revert back to the state that you were in when you were like young. Yeah. So even like when I have money in my bank account, it's almost like this manic thing that I like want to spend it. And like, I'm more comfortable with my bank account being at zero than having money in there. Is that weird? No, uh, that is not necessarily a defense mechanism, but let's, let's get into this for a second. So did you experience difficulty relationally regarding money when you were growing up? What do you mean? Like, well, was there someone in your life, like your parents that you were hurt by them or you judged them or they judged you or some kind of relational experience regarding money? Not really. We were just super broke. But my dad would always like, let me keep the change. And I really liked that. Okay. That was fun. So that uh, that might not really fit. Okay. So let's think about a childhood experience that was difficult for you, like something that didn't go so well, um, relationally speaking. Relationally? Typical ones are feeling rejected, feeling criticized, feeling... Is like 10th... 10 years old. Yeah. Uh, so I definitely remember like these two girls in my class be like, look what you're wearing. What are you wearing right now? And we were like so broke. So I think I probably had my brother's clothes on because I would steal my brother's clothes all the time. <laughs> okay, good. Not good, but good example. <laughs> you're, you're 10 years old and you're having this experience that's intense and it's over time in which people are judging you seemingly because you're poor and you don't have any money and you have shame around it. It was like we weren't poor. We were broke. We had like, we had really nice stuff and everything was going great when I, like, when I was like five years old. Yeah. And then it was like. Yeah. That. And so 10 years old, you're feeling shame around what you're dressed like yeah. at school. And you perceive other people as looking down on you. Yeah. Okay. So that becomes internalized. Now, the, the unfortunate thing 
about this is that we will internalize the other person. So not only do we internalize the experience of ourselves being criticized and ashamed, but we also internalize the other person. So they become a part of us Mm -hmm. because it's just the nature of personality. So that mean girl who judges becomes a part of you. And now inside of you, depending on how intense it was and depending on how much healing you've done around it, there's a conflict, an inner conflict between judging others for something and the other person feeling judged and ashamed of themselves. This can manifest in a number of different ways. It can manifest as an inner voice, like... I'm ashamed, like uh, you might shame yourself for not being a certain way or something. Does this make any sense? Mm-hmm. Does that, does that happen? Um, yeah. You know, we were talking about like class stuff, you know, and I always like, I always wish that I dressed nicer mm. and I'm like, why don't I dress nicer? I see other women. They look nice. Yeah. I don't look nice. Right. But then like every day I'm like, oh, I'm just going to the store and eh, we're just going out and then I'll like. Like, I'm just going to the coffee shop. Okay, good. I, I, I think I'm onto something. Okay. <laughs> We're making breakthroughs here. Yeah. So not only in your mind, <laughs> my cat's meowing, not only in your mind do you have a voice that's telling you that you should dress nicer, like there's a voice that that's potentially part of it is that, is that those mean girls telling you you're not dressing nice enough. Not only is that, but you're also the sort of person that, that likes to dress not nice. Like not, <laughs> not you dress badly, but you like to dress casually. Casually. Yeah. And that is a way of provoking particular people to judge you. Hmm. So in, you know, just using this as an example, we'd have to talk about it for a while to really figure this out. But what what is weird is that we will we will because of the difficulty has not been healed and it because there's a wound there we will recreate it. So one way of recreating that experience for you is to dress a certain way to provoke people to judge you, and then you can project your judginess onto those people and say, I'm not judgy, it's other people are judgy. And that it's a fantasy that no longer you're the judgy person, but the other people are judgy. Does that make any sense? Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. So that's projective identification. Whether or not it applies to you or not, you have to decide for yourself or be in denial of it, Paulette. Just joking. But that's projective identification. All right. There's also projection, which I won't go into. It's just projecting a part of the self. There's somatization, wishful thinking, hypochondriasis, social comparisons. Now level three. I just want to talk about a couple level three ones. So this is the most mature or healthy defenses. So identification. This is a healthy defense. When we are feeling um, insecure, we might identify with a role model mm-hmm. or a mentor. So with your writing, when you feel insecure about your writing, you might, you might identify with a particular writer who has strength and who has survived or overcome their insecurity. Does that make sense? Do you ever do that? What do you mean identify with? Meaning that you're trying to kind of take them in. You're trying to be like them. Mm-hmm. You're, you're trying to adopt their qualities. You're, you're using their, your image of them as a way of infusing that into your own personality. Is this like when I sing Beyonce in the morning? Exactly. Mm. We do this with, with famous people all the time. The famous people aren't actually like that. They're not actually like the image we have in our mind. They are a representation to us. And so we will functionally look to them to give us certain qualities that we want when we need them. Mm-hmm. Children do this. You look at your parents and, oh, they're so strong and I want to be like him or, th- or her, that kind of stuff. Okay. Another one, sublimation. This is another healthy, healthy uh, defense. The classic one <laughs> that's often talked about and you could debate whether or not this is functional, is you want to cheat on your spouse with a random person. And so instead of cheating, you actually fantasize about them while you're having sex with your partner. That's, that's sublimating energy. You're like, oh, I'm really horny for this person, so I'll go home and be horny for my spouse. Um, other things like that. Um, another example is 
you want to harm people. You want to punch people in the face because you're so angry at them. But instead, you go into boxing or MMA because it's it's a functional way of getting out your energy. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Do you have any examples of that? I used to take Krav Maga. That was like a Israeli fighting technique. That was fun. Okay. We're... At the time, you feeling any aggression or hostility towards other people and 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 channeling it into that? Not really. Okay. I mean, writing is kind of like that, you know, where you can you can explore a lot of different things in writing that, especially explore kind of conversations that you want to have with people or things you want to tell people. Sometimes I'll write specifically to one person things that I can't say, you know. Good, excellent example. So, oh, yeah. there's something you want to say to someone in your personal life, but you surmise that it won't go well for you and the other person if you say those things. Mm -hmm. And instead, you'll sublimate that energy into writing, which goes out to a different audience, or even if you don't share that, even if you're just writing it down, that's sublimation. So just to finish up here, other mature defenses or healthy defenses are suppression, Planning, just literally planning for the future. Self-awareness, self-acceptance, accepting your, your problems. Emotional self-regulation, that's pretty self-explanatory. Forgiveness, that's a functional way of dealing with, with problems. Gratitude, humility, humor, compassion, and empathy. All these wouldn't in the past be considered defense mechanisms, but in contemporary writing, they will often... As, a, as the positive psychology movement uh, helps us to focus on positive things, we try to come up with positive defenses, and all these are positive defenses. Like, for instance, with compassion, you could be quite upset at your partner, for instance, and you'll purposely convert that into compassion for your partner because you're, you're trying to defend against the state that you're in in that moment where you want to attack the other person and put them down and end the relationship. You're, instead, you convert it into compassion for the other person. And so this is a healthy and mature defense. And they're often conscious, these, these kinds of defenses. Any final word on defense mechanisms? Use them. Got to use them. Got to use them. Try to, <laughs> and try to move towards the mature and healthy types, right? Mature and healthy, not pathological. Yeah. And if you're a therapist out there, the thing to think about is your own defenses while you're in session with clients, because you will use defenses with your own clients. You'll displace your own issues onto your clients, mm. among other things. Or when a client is talking about something that's difficult for you, you might uh, regress yourself and this sort of stuff. But your clients will also be using defense mechanisms. And the idea is not to get people to stop using defense mechanisms. That might be part of it. But the bigger picture is, why are they using those defenses? What are they trying to defend against? What shame, what internal conflict is is going on for them? And how can you help them heal from those so that they don't need to employ those defenses anymore? That's, that's the main thing. You want to use corrective emotional experiences to help heal the wounds so that defenses become less necessary. Does that make sense, Paulette? Yes. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it.